0: It is my pleasure to welcome back Spec as the presenting sponsor of Fraudology this quarter. Stay tuned for more information and updates on their product capabilities, or click the link in the episode description to request your personal demo of Spec's Trust Cloud platform. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I mentioned on Tuesday's episode that the week these episodes are coming out is International Fraud Awareness Week. So as I mentioned on Tuesday, this is a week that was originally started by the ACFE, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, to really provide a week of awareness about preventing fraud. Now, within the ACFE, the traditional definition of fraud is around occupational fraud, uh, embezzlement, tax fraud. Honestly, a lot of the things that I talked with Jason Brown about uh, two weeks ago, but a lot of us have also co-opted it. Uh, So I have seen a lot of people in the online fraud space uh, look at it in construction fraud, in mortgage fraud. There's so many different types of fraud, unfortunately, government fraud. Um, And all of us are saying, you know what? It's good to have a week to be aware of fraud. And So this week uh, for today's solo episode, I wanted to provide the top six tips that I provide to people in my life uh, to help keep them safe from fraud. If you're a fraud fighter, I'm sure that you have a lot of people in your life who have asked you sometimes once, sometimes more than once, well, what should I do to prevent fraud? And usually I think they're just hoping for one small tip or something like that. Uh, But I have six tips and uh, I think that you all will recognize the types of fraud that they prevent. But honestly, they may not be things that you're doing in your everyday life either. Uh, they are definitely things, some of these things I've had to adopt in my everyday life just in the last year or two, because as I say in almost every episode lately, online fraud is changing very rapidly. Just like with the AI bots I talked about last week, it is changing so quickly. Those weren't even really a known concern in August of this year. I think there was one company that was starting to see them a little bit in July. That's it. So it's changing very quickly. But I also, you know, most of the episodes of this podcast are typically for fraud fighters. Uh, I usually get down to details and Talk about your job and how to maybe do it better or learn more about different types of fraud. But if you ever wanted to share an episode of Fraudology with family or friends, uh, and certainly I'm going to, because I certainly have a lot of family and friends that have asked if they can, you know, which episode should I listen to? And there are a couple that I think anyone would love, like the ones with Robert Kerbeck, uh, the episode with Jason T. Brown recently. Um, There are several others. But this one is really for those people who want to prevent fraud in their own life against themselves. Uh, And so please share it with those friends and family, either on social media or, you know, at a holiday table in the next few weeks. Uh, I'm half joking, but I know some of you will. But it's important, right? And these are tips that if I had, if I could clone myself, if I had a lot of extra free time, I would be doing my best to get them out into the rest of the world right? and not just uh, preaching to the choir as they say, but they're things that I think we all would appreciate as well as fraud fighters for consumers to do because they would help you do your job better. I did want to say before diving into these tips that next week I will return to news for fraud fighters. There's been two pieces of news that have come out in the last week that I wanted to make sure that I highlight and I will do that next week. I think we're just going to have one episode uh, because it's a holiday week in the U.S., And uh, so it's a good week to catch up on other episodes if you're outside the US or if you're traveling. But so I'm going to touch on um, changes to Zelle liability policies for scammers, which just came out actually the day that I'm recording this episode. And then also I just got information from a listener about a uh, new liability shift information for merchants regarding Apple Pay and Visa. That episode was really popular and I, I know why. Um, and so there is a new program with Apple Pay and Visa that just launched a couple weeks ago uh, and I was able to get a little more information about that. So I will touch on those next week. I just wanted to highlight those for you so you can make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and be able to know as soon as those episodes are out. I'm not so good at posting on LinkedIn every day that on the exact day the episodes come out. So it's good to subscribe so that you know when um, a new episode comes out and you can be alerted from your podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Okay, so I'm going to dive into the six tips that I recommend for everyday consumers. And this is really for 2023. And what I mean by that is I wouldn't have provided these exact tips even a year ago. Uh, actually, when I was in my, I was gonna say past life, but my previous career, one of the things I got to do in November of every year uh, in that job was write out the uh, top 10 tips for consumers uh, that would be posted on the FBI's IC3 website uh, for holiday shopping and other things, you know, knowing what type of fraud online companies are seeing, you can kind of reverse engineer that and know what type of fraud consumers are going to be targeted for. And unfortunately, because we as fraud fighters have done such a good job at identifying fraud, a lot of it is now targeting consumers directly. And, you know, whether that's impersonation scams or check fraud or gift card scams, that type of thing. And so it's really more important than ever that we get consumer participation because. There are a lot of consumer protections for them and so sometimes I think it's easy not to think it's your responsibility to protect your credit card for example or you know be very very mindful of your credit card number because in theory you know that your bank's going to pay you back now any of us in e-commerce online fraud know that if it was an online purchase or any purchase where the card wasn't present that's not the case they'll call their bank but their bank will actually get the money from the merchant through the chargeback process but that often has made it just not as important for consumers to be aware of scams. But now there are scams that are targeting them where they're not getting reimbursed. Not only is Zelle's parent company early warning expecting banks to reimburse scammers, but they're also putting a delay on the payment time and allowing banks to get that money and recover that money from the recipient. And that's great but um, I can see that shifting a lot of fraud to other P2P services. I can also see that creating new types of fraud and new consumer-assisted scams. So it's just always changing. And because of that, it's important that we not only know the changes as professionals, but as consumers too. So my number one piece of advice is to treat your own PII like your bank account numbers. And PII is Personal Identifiable Information. It's anything that can be connected to you. So your name, your address, your phone number, your email, your date of birth, your social security number, government ID number, um, driver's license number, credit card numbers, et cetera. And especially when those things are in combination. So, you know, your name plus your address, like on your mail or, you know, some people on their social media have their email and their phone and and their birth date on their public social media. That makes it really easy to be able to impersonate you to be able to steal your identity. I mean, think about the pieces of information that needed to open up a bank account or open up a credit card in your name. A lot of that information is public. It can be looked up, you know, in browsers, it can, you know, in the search engines, it can be looked up. You can find a lot of this information just using a search engine. But a lot of times the people who are harvesting the information to steal identities or steal payment information will start with just a combination of a name and an address. If they have that piece they can often look up the rest. Unfortunately, there are tools that are you know, for the good guys, but also used by some bad guys to be able to put more of those pieces together. For instance, uh, there's a great site called Have I Been Pwned? And that allows you to put in your email address to see if your email has or your passwords have been breached at anywhere. Well, when you do that, it often will provide you with the passwords that were breached. Well, if you're using the same password for more than one account, that's easy to, you know, then hack your account. I'll be talking more about passwords and account uh, protection in just a minute, but that was just one example. Uh, There's a lot of things that you can look up uh, you know just even whitepages.com right if you have your name and address you can see who else you live with and then go to your facebook or your instagram or your old myspace account and oh look you have your phone number and your email and your birthday all right there well now they just need your social security number which unfortunately is easier to get than you'd think um, and i'm not going to go into all of that but it is easy to get and in other countries there are similar you know government id numbers that are maybe not as easy to get as in the States, but still not hard. And so there are people whose entire job is just to harvest information and to look this up. And they're looking it up in all kinds of ways. It's not just through hacking anymore. In fact, most online companies are so secure from hacking that they're having to get creative. There are some people that Just look up junk mail, you know, that go to the dump and are looking for junk mail. And then they'll say, they'll sell those names and phone numbers, or they'll go look up the, well, names and addresses, and they'll go look up the phone number and they'll try to get as complete of a profile as possible for what is called a FOLS, F U L L Z, on the dark web. And then they'll sell it. And often those people who are doing that are unfortunately addicted to drugs and they're living on the streets. And this is a way they can make a quick $20 to $50 is by selling data. There's even car prowlers that will do it. Uh, You know, they get into your car, they get your registration or, you know, other pieces of information that have your name and address. That's a starting point. And then they can find the rest online. So here's a couple of specific tips around treating your you know, personal identifiable information, especially when there's more than one with the other, um, treating it like it's your bank account number because it it is you and you can be impersonated very easily that way. They can also call up there, you know, your bank. And if they know who your bank is, then they know, you know, cause they saw the mail or they saw, you know who's sending you mail for a statement, well, your statement probably has the last three digits of the credit card number on it or the whole thing in some cases. They can call your bank and say, oh my gosh, I lost my card. Can you send me a new one? And a lot of the information that banks ask for to verify your identity can be found in old Facebook surveys or can be found in posts, right? When you talk about your pet or you talk about your child or you talk about when and where you were married, things like that. So a big one that I tell people is if someone calls you and they're asking for any information, whether they just want to, you know, they say they're from your bank and they want to confirm your credit card number or your bank account number. You know, they say they're from the fraud department and they want to make sure that you have your credit card in your possession. And in order to verify that you need to read off your full 16 digits on your card Uh, or, you know, they call and say that you owe a bill right? Anything like that. They say they're from your doctor's office. They say they're from the IRS. They say they're from, you know, another tax authority in another country. It doesn't even matter if you know them and you know, you owe them money. I do this with, you know, my doctors sometimes, like if I, Oh, whoops, forgot to pay a copay at the You know, at the doctor's office or something, if they call me, I call them back. And I don't call them back on the phone number that they give me. I call them back on the number that is listed to that company. Uh, I've told this story before, but if you haven't listened to the podcast before, you probably haven't heard it. Uh, One of the best scam phone calls I got that if I didn't do what I do, I completely would have fallen for it. And that's that I had had my card number stolen a month or two before. So because of the first six digits of my credit card, the scammers knew who my bank was. So they spoofed the phone number, made it look like it was coming from my bank. And they called me and said that they needed uh, to verify my bank account number. And they needed to verify that I got a new card. And so, you know, looked like it was my bank on caller ID on my cell phone. They knew who my bank was. I mean, they said the full name and not the initials, which usually is how my bank goes by, but you know, that's not too weird. And uh, but then when I said, well, which account do you need to verify is the one that, you know, was compromised or a different one? And they said, all of them. And I went, oh, OK. But there were other things, too. And I, I told them, I said, well, I have a policy that I don't give out any of my personal information to people who call me. And uh, they got very pushy and said, well, you can't call the fraud department. You know, we're, and I said, well, that's not true. I've done that before. Um, every fraud department has a phone number that customer service can reach, whether it's at a bank or it's at you know an e-commerce company. Eh, e-commerce, and that can be more difficult, but you know if they're calling and saying they're the fraud department, they probably. You know, you can probably call back to the company and say, does your fraud department ever make phone calls outbound? Whatever it is, but just do not under any circumstance, just have a policy that you don't give out anything, not your credit card number, not your bank account, not your, you know, date of birth and your mother's maiden name, not anything like that that could be used to steal your identity or get access to accounts that you already have. Another one underneath this, as far as keeping your PII safe. Uh, is to shred or disguise the name and address, your name and address on all your mail, including junk mail, before recycling or throwing it in the trash or rubbish. This is something that (laughs) kind of drives my husband crazy. We have a basket by our door and I put all the junk mail in there. uh, And then once every few weeks, I get it all out. And then while we're watching a TV show or a movie or something, I have this little stamp that is specifically for disguising uh, personal information on mail. And so I just roll, it's like a rolling stamp and I just roll it over and then I open up the mail and make sure that there's nothing that has our name or our address on it anywhere. And then I throw it away. And the reason I don't shred them, honestly, is because I tried that and I just am not good at remembering to shred things. But if you have a shredder and you really like using it and that works for you, then that's even better. Uh, but this way I have at least disguised it and there's no way. And I'm not just doing it on my mail and my junk mail. On every single package that comes to our house, I am taking off the label or I am using that stamp over it and it completely disguises all the information. That might seem extreme to you, but I know how easy it can be to, once you have somebody's name and address, you can steal their identity very simply. It's going to take a little bit of legwork, but not as much as you probably think. And so I, it's worth it to me to do that. Um, might make me seem neurotic, but that's what I do. Um, another one is, uh, you know, keeping your social media profiles private, especially, you know, anything about your date, the exact address that you live at your phone number, anything like that, even the, uh, I mean I really don't use much social media at all anymore I think really the only social media account that I check on a regular basis is LinkedIn but you know I've had a Facebook for many years and um you know you can designate people as family members right you can say who's your mom who's your sister who's your this I don't do that because that's you know identifiable information and I don't want them to be linked to me. I mean, part of it is also because I do know that because I have a public podcast that, that I could possibly be the target of something at some point. So I try to be you know, very careful. However, I have to say that I have not uh, gone back and looked at new privacy settings for a while. And uh, I'm now reminding myself that one of the listeners of the podcast found me on uh, Facebook a while ago and said, Hey, you have more things you know, showing than I thought. And it was mostly public posts about fraud uh, because a lot of my friends would ask me to make them public. But I think there, you know, there are some things. So I need to go back and because they change them all the time, then they're often showing more information that you thought you had locked down before. So again, any of those data points that can be combined together is a really good start to steal your identity. Uh, number two is to treat your passwords with extreme care. Also, I wanted a whole separate section for passwords because it's needed. And this is what we would call you know preventing account takeover. But what you might call it is to avoid account hacking, right? If people say, Oh, my Instagram got hacked, or my, you know, bank account got hacked or my you know, Amazon shopping account got hacked and they used the you know credit card that's on file. That is a very popular way of fraud right now. And it's not going away anytime soon. I know that businesses are doing their very best, at least the fraud departments of those businesses are doing their very best to protect accounts more, but it takes time and technology and we could really use a lot of consumer help. So, I know these are hard. They're, they've been hard for me to, some of them have been harder for me to implement in my everyday life than they probably, you know, than I'd want them to be, but I know the importance of them. So the first tip is don't use the same password for more than one account as much as you possibly can. Now, there are some people who kind of look at their accounts uh, in different levels of security, and they definitely won't have a reused password for their banking or their investments or their, uh, social media accounts, anything that could, uh, allow someone to impersonate you or, you know, access money and just withdraw it or transfer it somewhere because once it's transferred, it's gone. Um, but, uh, there are some people who choose to have those accounts that are much more secure, much more important to keep secure. There are some people who will protect the accounts that are more important to secure like those with their own unique long password, but then there are other accounts, they might have a credit card on file, they might not, uh, but maybe they don't think it's as important. What I will say is another group of accounts that are really important is airline accounts or anything that you have loyalty points with. Because if you want to use those, if you're saving up your air miles for a dream vacation or your hotel, you know, points or you know, for a, your favorite clothing company, whatever it is. Those are a currency and there are a lot of people out there trying to break into accounts just to steal all of the stored value. Especially after COVID, we had people that were going into accounts for anything travel and entertainment related because they knew that there were a lot of store credits on accounts for concerts that were canceled, sporting events that were canceled, travel plans that were canceled and they were extracting that money and transferring them to other accounts within the company and then transferring them out uh, or using them or selling them you know somewhere in a website or or selling them on a secondary marketplace. I know that a lot of marketplaces are trying not to have you know point reward points or loyalty points or air miles be something that's sold but you can still find it i can still and will be done so uh, it's important to protect those accounts too. Um so do what you can to not use the same password for more than one account. I know that we didn't have that guidance when we first started creating passwords for accounts. So I've actually like realized over the years, oh wow, I didn't realize that my, you know, that streaming company still had a password on it that I used, you know, on more than one account 10, 12, 13 years ago before we knew about account takeover. Well if I notice it, I'll change it. And then my whole family gets upset because Now, they can't access the streaming platform too, but they're getting used to it. Um, Use a password manager, but preferably one that hasn't been breached multiple times. Uh, Because when password managers are breached and all that information is accessible, well, then they literally have stolen the keys to your kingdom. They've stolen the access to every account that you have access to. And they often will change the password as soon as they get access to it. And then you have to prove authenticity to the company. And it's a huge pain. So um, I'm not necessarily advocating for one over the other, but I am, or for anything specific, but I am saying do a little research on a search engine. Make sure that whatever password manager you're looking at hasn't had multiple data breaches. So put in their name plus data breach and see what comes up. Um, it has to do with the way that they store your information. So there are some password managers that store it in you know a hashed form, but it can be easily unencrypted. And uh, those are some of the older companies. Some of the newer companies have even more security around it. And there's just no way for anyone to access passwords that are stored on their sites. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors... But Spec's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. Spec lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Spec's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. Here's another one that I really haven't heard anyone say, but I really think it's important. Change the passwords to your email address, your browser, your bank account, your investing accounts, your social media accounts, et cetera. Like all those accounts that are very, that should be secure because they can verify you. And remember, don't forget that a lot of social media companies now have social sign on. So you can now access online shopping accounts or uh, rideshare companies or others just by being logged into Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. So getting access to your social media is something that you should really try to prevent. So if you want to, you know, I know that at least in the US, because we have daylight savings, and I know there are other countries that do too. There's been this advisory for years, I think since I was a kid, to change your the batteries in your smoke detector on the same time, because then you're changing them twice a year and you're remembering. If you want to tie changing your password to these very important accounts to daylight savings time, that's certainly one way to do it. But you really can honestly count on your password being leaked and out there you know, once a year or more. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And I'm not going to get into all the ways that it's done because this would be a very long episode. But uh, that's certainly something that, you know, changing it up is important. And if you use any easy logic in all your passwords, you know, whether it's around your birthday or your child's name, your pet's name, any of that, it's going to be easy to identify. So if you, if your dog's name is Fido and you always do Fido the month and the year, right. Uh, for your password. So, you know, it would be Fido 11, 2023. Well, that's gonna be easy because you know, fraudsters will see, oh, okay. So I see that they have, you know, FIDO two 2012. They have FIDO six 2016. That's pretty easy to crack. And they're not doing it just manually anymore. There are password crackers out there that are so easy to use, and they'll just keep running different passwords into various accounts over and over and over again, or they will you know, look up your password or they'll have your password already and they'll try it in all different websites, right? So they have your password for this one account that was breached, but now they're going to run a bot to plug it into any online website and use that same username and same password combination and see if they can get through. Uh, But then there's the crackers that will do brute force or that will, you know, play around and do that. And I found this interesting graphic. I mean, it's scary, but it's interesting as far as how quickly passwords can be accessed um, through a password cracker. If you have number of characters between four and 11 characters and you only use numbers, it can be cracked instantly between four and eight characters with lowercase letters. And that's it instantly then there's combinations of it. So if you have four or five or six characters in your password, and it contains numbers, upper, lowercase letters, and symbols, those can all be accessed instantly, but then it goes down, right? So even if you have numbers and upper and lowercase letters and symbols in your password, if you have seven, eight, or nine characters in that password this is terrifying to me so it's the most secure right you've got all these different things you have numbers you have uppercase lowercase and symbols but you only have nine characters in that password it can be cracked in six hours if it's eight characters it can be cracked in five minutes so really when i'm looking at this table you want to be down to you know 13 characters. And if you use 13 characters and they're a combination of numbers, upper and lowercase letters and symbols, it's going to take 15,000 years to try to crack your password. That is a hell of a lot safer than instantly. So, you know, having your passwords have more than I would say 13 characters And having numbers, uppercase, lowercase, and symbols, I know it's a pain, but there's a reason why different companies are requiring that now. It's for your safety but it's important to have different passwords, different times. A lot of people recommend having a sentence and using characters, upper lowercase and numbers within that sentence. So you can remember it. But again, a password manager is better because we have so many accounts now, you know, hundreds usually per person, and you just can't remember a unique password, every single one. Um, Some people ask me about writing down passwords. I mean, it's not It's not safe, but it's certainly a lot safer than storing a document on your computer uh, with all your passwords listed, even if it's local on your computer. So if that's what you have to do is have a password book, you know, somewhere in your house, preferably locked. That's actually going to be safer than having it in a Word document on your computer. Okay, the next few are going to go a little faster than those two big ones, because those two big ones were kind of the most important, I think. Uh, But these are all very equally important. So when you're interacting on a platform, and I'll explain what that is in a minute, don't ever go off platform. So a platform, what I mean by a platform is a social media company, a marketplace, online dating, anywhere where you're interacting with people that you don't know, and you can't Necessarily verify their identity. So you know you're on social media, and somebody contacts you, and then says, "Hey, uh, can we can we finish up this conversation on Facetime, or can we finish up this conversation on WhatsApp? Um, You know, I'd rather talk to you uh, via text message." Or you list something. This is common, and I think a lot of people have had this experience. You list something in a local marketplace. Uh, Maybe it's in social media. Maybe it's in an app, and you'll often get. People in quotation marks, reaching out to you right away, asking, "Is this still available?" And if you say yes, then they will say, "Great, can we uh, finish this transaction up on, you know, WhatsApp or do you have Venmo or do you have Zelle?" Um, Let's—they want to get off the platform as soon as possible. Same with online dating. It was really a bummer to me to hear that a family member uh, fell for a scheme that you know they posted something online uh, to sell and they were contacted and told, Hey, you know, let's finish this up on, I don't know if it was, um, I think it was, you know, the iOS messaging app. And so they did. And then they were, um, they were paid. I think it was through an ACH transfer $1,800 to their bank account. And then the person was like, Oh no, I sent you too much money. And that's what we call an overpayment scam. And so they said, you know, I know that they knew that there was a limit on Apple pay peer to peer Apple cash of $500 per transaction. So they instructed my family member to pay three separate transactions of $500 through Apple cash. And this can happen on anything. So I'm not just bringing up Apple cash to bring them up. It can happen on Venmo. It can happen on Zelle. It can happen on cash app. It can happen on any of them. So this family member did that because the item was $300. So they sent them back $1,500. And a few days later, I mean, those of us who are fraud fighters know exactly what happened. A few days later, that check that was sent for $1,800 was debited. So now this family member is out $1,500. And that's a lot of money, especially for this family member. And I just felt so bad, just like Haley said it the other day, where You know, when someone close to us gets scammed, you feel responsible and feel like, gosh, I didn't tell them never to go off platform. And here's the reason, right? All the companies that have platforms, they have trust and safety teams, and they are looking for any suspicious interactions. They're looking for, they know what to look for, right? And scammers, they know that they know what to look for. So they want to get off the platform. They also want to have things segregated so or segmented. So they're segmenting the communication from the payments so that, you know, if they just move to the payments piece and the peer-to-peer app and they're interacting on a whole other site, well, now the peer-to-peer app can't look at the interaction and go, ooh, that looks suspicious. They don't know what it's for. It could be for someone they know personally for babysitting or dog sitting or whatever. If the platform has, you know, money mechanism within it, you should use that because oftentimes they're overseeing that. They have to oversee that and look at it and look for suspicious transactions. But if you just have a policy, just like with my phone number or my phone policy, where I don't give out any personal information when someone calls me, I offer to call them back on the listed phone number. Yeah. And I, yeah, like I said, I've done that to people I know. I don't care. It's just my policy. That way I won't ever fall for something, right? If I'm inconsistent in that, then that gives opportunity for scammers. And also, if I'm inconsistent in those personal policies, then I might be able to be convinced otherwise. I might be able to be socially engineered, like what Robert Kerbeck used to do, as he explains, it's pretty darn easy. And he was in two previous podcast episodes, by the way, Uh, he was a former corporate spy and got a lot of information out of people. So he knows what he's talking about. And he says, it's very easy. And he gave some really good examples where you're like, Oh, how I could fall for that. Well, if you always have the policy not to give out information, unless you're calling someone back uh, at the phone number, you're calling the actual company. Well, then you'll never fall for it. Right. Same with this. If you just always say, nope, I stay on this platform. If I posted it for sale on this marketplace, I'm going to only communicate with you on this marketplace. If I posted it, you know, if I posted online dating profile, then I'm going to stay on the online dating platform because their team knows what to look for and will be looking for it. If somebody is insistent that the only way they'll talk to you or the only way they'll buy that item is for you to communicate with them somewhere else, well, then it's not worth it. It's not worth the, the headache and all that can happen by doing that. They chose to be on that platform too. So they obviously have an account. So there shouldn't be any reason why they're trying to get off of it. While we're talking about social media, here's another, a couple other tips. Don't click on any links on social media or text or email from anyone that you don't know or trust. I mean, we all have that friend from high school that posts all kinds of crazy stuff. And you're like, you're not getting those designer sneakers for, or those popular sneakers for $25, buddy, you know, don't click on that link. But usually I won't even click on links in ads on social media. Uh, and if you listened to the episode with my daughter a few months ago, she knows this rule for sure. And she actually admitted that she breaks it sometimes. And I'm like, no, because i there are multiple times where I've seen ads on social media and they say there for one thing, but when you look at the website, they want you to go to, if you click that ad, it's a pretty sketchy looking website. It has nothing to do with the product. It has nothing to do with the company that, you know, originally sells it. But also, and I know this from, you know, working with social media companies, they do a good job, but they can only do so much of a good job. And so they don't always have control over what uh, ads link to. Actually, um, Asaf Kipnis, who was on the podcast a few months ago, he was you know the former manager of engineers for Marketplace Integrity. At well, Asaf Kipnis, who was the previous uh, manager of engineering for Content Integrity at. Meta or Facebook and Instagram, he shared that too, right? There's several scams of using ads on social media to get you to go to malicious sites and download software, or maybe you're not downloading software, but you're Uh, you open up a website that you think is supposed to be for an article that you want to read. And instead, it just pops up a whole bunch of ads. And that is using you for ad fraud. So there's a lot of different things that can be done there. You just can't trust, you know, links that are sent to you blindly from anyone, you know, on text message on email. Um, There's a lot of malware that can happen. And that's a really easy way to get all your accounts hacked. Because Then they can be able to see every time you log into any account, they'll know your username and password. There's some scary stuff out there, and there will be a lot of stories about why it's important for you to click this link. I know in phishing training, they so phishing emails, they talk about you know for businesses, they talk about you you might get an email saying that an HR complaint was filed against you, and the only way you can know what it is is if you click the link and open up you know the attachment. Well oftentimes you're downloading malware and it can, a lot of the malware can go undetected for quite a while. So it's scary stuff. And I think it's just good to have this policy that you don't do that. Instead, what I do is if there's an ad online for something that I want, I'm interested in, whether it's even in a search engine at the top, like the paid for ads, I don't, I won't ever click those. Um, There are some integrity things. And actually, um, Laura, who we had on the podcast, I think it was Six or seven months ago, Laura Mather, she is actually the reason why search engines have to have the right password or the right website. Um, on the top. So not the advertisement, not the sponsored, but the ones that the results that come back. When she was the first employee in trust and safety at eBay, they had a lot of websites that were created that would claim that they were eBay and it would install malicious malware on people's computers. So she actually flew up, she told the story on the podcast, she flew up to Microsoft and uh, because they ran the you know biggest search engine at the time and begged them to have a way that they could verify that the correct company was coming up at the top of the results. And there's now um, a rule around that or a law around that for search engines. So that is safe, but not the ad or sponsored spot. I wouldn't recommend that at all. Uh, And yeah, sure. It's a little bit of a pain, but it's... (laughs) way better than what can happen if you click on the link. Um, Similarly, don't ever respond to any texts, emails, or messages on social media from anyone you don't know personally, or that you can't verify that you can't verify that they are who they say they are. Example, um, and here's a couple examples of, you know, text messages that people have been getting lately, and they seem harmless at first, but they really aren't. And once Erin uh, West is done flying all over the world to save the world, uh, she'll be on the podcast, and she'll talk more about pig butchering scams and why this is so important to do and to listen to. But You know, you may have gotten a text once that said something like, hi, Jim, I have to cancel our tea time tomorrow. Or hi, Susie, can you meet for coffee next week? And the first thing that you want to do is say, oh, sorry, you got the wrong number. Well, that's what they're hoping for. And then they'll start up a conversation with you. And then all of a sudden, they'll like all the same things as you will. And It's not even romantic anymore. It used to be more for romance scams, but now they strike up a friendship. And then a few weeks later, they tell you, you know, oh, I do investing in crypto. And then, you know, a week or two later, oh, wow, I made, you know, so 10x on my investment in crypto. This is amazing. And you might ask them how it's, how they did that. And they'll say, oh, you know, I can't tell you, or they'll make you on it even more. And then, uh, that's actually what, you know, is often referred to as pig butchering scams here, uh, within the fraud circle. So that's just really important and a good rule to practice of don't respond to anyone you don't know. Same thing on social media. Even LinkedIn has had this recently where people are getting, you know, personalized messages saying that their profile picture looks good or, you know, sometimes it's a little more forward and, you know, almost like they're asking them out on a date, or they're flirting. Other times, it's you know, hey, I'd like more information about what you do, or your company is really interesting, uh, something like that. Or, or they'll do the trick where they'll write it to someone else so that you can say, ah, oh, that isn't me. But because it's social media, that you can see who you're writing to. That's usually not the method that they go. But this can happen, like I said, in you know, so many different things in text message, in your email. They're wanting you to write back so that you're starting to form a relationship just whatever you do, don't give them that opportunity. If you can't verify them, if you can't say, oh, okay, it does look like they work here or uh, they're connected to my friend and I know my friend forever, even though that can also look suspicious because there are definitely scammers who will connect with everyone in your friend group. And not everyone is as picky as I am about who they accept as connections within social media. Uh, And so you need to be careful, right? Like, I'm very aware that a lot of people have told me that when they're looking at somebody, you know, and if they're going to approve them or not on LinkedIn, they look and see if I'm one of their connections. And if I am, if they have that shared connection, then they trust that person. So I take it very seriously to vet people on LinkedIn. It's why I don't always accept connection requests very quickly. So I apologize for that. But again, it's for safety. I want to take all of my information and make it as secure as possible because so many people trust me and I don't ever want to break that trust. So I'm very careful and I hope you guys you know, will be too. So now we're to the sixth tip. And I mean, obviously there are many, there are sub tips underneath these, but these are really kind of the high level. Don't mail checks if you can help it. Also, do not write out your credit card number on a bill and send it in the mail. I don't know how many people do that. Mail theft is up by hundreds of percent. I don't remember the exact uh, figure, but it's very, very big in the U.S. Uh, there's some great people that I follow on LinkedIn that are just continually posting about it and beating the drum to hope that the U.S. Postal Inspector or the head of the U.S. Postal Office will do something about it uh, and help for mail fraud. But the reason why there's mail fraud is that they're looking for checks or they're looking for a bill that you paid where you wrote down your credit card number. Just don't give them the ability to do that. That is, it's also becoming a violent crime because in some cases they are robbing the mail carrier at knife point or even at gunpoint or they're beating them up so that they can get the keys that they need. And those keys, they open up every single blue box in the US, well, no, in each region. But in the US, we have postal bins where you can mail, mail, and then a postal worker comes around and picks it up once or twice a day. Well, these keys are becoming a really really valuable commodity and it's something that criminals are you know getting violent with mail carriers to get so if you do have to mail a check walk it into the post office or into you know your postal uh, office but don't ever drop it in the bulk bins on the street or anything or even in your own personal mailbox I don't mail anything out of my mailbox I always go to the post office. I just, I can't look at my mailbox every single day, all day, and make sure that no one else is opening it. And even if I did see them, you know, could I catch them? Could I tell them no? Probably not. So it's better just to try to prevent it in the first place. And that way, if your mail does get stolen, they're not stealing a check. Um, We gave advice last year, even anti-fraud professionals did, that in order to prevent check fraud, all you had to do is use a certain uh, gel pen, because when they were cleaning the checks, they wouldn't be able to get that gel pen out of the, the check. And so it'd be worthless to them. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to take away the payer information. So who you're paying the check to. And then often they're trying to change that amount to be much higher. And so they might change it to themselves and then put the amount or a business that they opened or, you know, whatever it is so that they can get the money. So even if you wrote a hundred dollar check, that doesn't mean that it's not going to come through your bank account as a thousand dollar check. So it's just not something to mess with. So that's why I uh, really am very It might seem like overkill, but I just won't mail anything in my mailbox. Now, does that mean that I have a few things for friends that I intended to give them last Christmas? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not good at remembering to go to the post office, but at least my mail hasn't gotten stolen. So there's that and then a bonus tip uh, as the holidays are approaching you know if you see items that are you know popular items for the holidays for gifts especially that are just outrageous prices just super super low uh, a lot lower than you could ever get it on sale at regular stores whether that's on a marketplace whether that's on social media or anywhere in between use extreme caution i really would implore you not to buy those because they're either going to be fake or stolen and yeah, the fraud isn't exactly happening to you, but there are repercussions that can happen. Like for instance, if you give the fraudster your name and address to ship the item that you ordered to them to you to ship the item to you, well, now they have your name and your address, and they know what your what kind of items you're into, so they can steal your identity and they can work on that process. Unfortunately, our world and the things we do every day were not set up with worst case scenarios in mind. And as those of us who are fraud professionals start getting better at identifying fraud before it happens, then fraudsters are going to turn to consumers and target them. And then the last thing I'm going to say just to end out this episode and I'm sure you've heard it and you know hundreds of times in your life, but it's just such a good mantra to use and I did modify it a little bit to be a lot more true for now, and that is if it sounds too good to be true, It is. Thanks, you guys, so much for listening to this episode of Fraudology. I appreciate you all, and I will look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to SPEC for sponsoring today's episode. I'm really excited for more online companies to see what's possible with their fraud infrastructure. Spec's Trust Cloud is way more than just another fraud product. And I hope you'll visit com to learn why.